In this episode of Influencers, Canyon Partners co-founder and co-CEO, Josh Friedman. Inflation is clearly here in the labor markets, is here in the commodity markets, is here in the supply disruption for all sorts of goods and services. They can raise interest rates all they want. It doesn't necessarily curtail the gap between the number of people who are on the bench looking for jobs and the number of jobs that are available. There is a lot of liquidity. But I guess what I would say is whether that liquidity gets put to work or not depends on people's optimism or pessimism. And optimism and pessimism always overshoot. Hello everyone and welcome to Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer and I'm here with Josh Friedman, Canyon Partners co-founder and co-CEO. Josh, so great to see you. Thank you very much, Andy. Nice to be here. So why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about what Canyon does. So Canyon is uh, a firm that has its roots in the hedge fund business, primarily in things like distressed debt. And over time, that format has evolved to different types of securities as well as different types of structures. So we have a variety of different platforms from real estate to debt to more equity-oriented platforms to direct lending platforms to distressed platforms to the original multi-strategy hedge fund, um, all of which comprise, broadly speaking, alternative investments. And that total is about $25 billion in assets. And uh, our headquarters is in Dallas, Texas now. We have a large presence here in Los Angeles, as well as a presence in London and New York and Hong Kong and, and Tokyo and Seoul and Shanghai. There are other people, other companies, obviously, that do what you do, Josh. So what makes Canyon different? How do you differentiate yourself in the marketplace? Um, there's nothing that we do that's 100% proprietary, um, and that's true with everyone in the investment business, I'm afraid. Uh, we always tried from the very beginning to be a high-value-added boutique investor, so not necessarily the largest investor, but to have the types of scale and resources internally to be able to participate in very complicated situations. And almost everything we do involves buying something in a way uh, in a situation that's very complex and selling it when it becomes simple because when things are complex, companies going through restructuring or they need capital urgently for some reason or they're trying to finance a project immediately and uh, usually you get well paid for taking those types of uh, risks and undertaking those types of situations. And by the time things are simple and readily accessible, then you can usually sell them at a higher price. So, so that's really what we do across all of the themes that we exploit. But there are certain areas where we've traditionally had a large and significant sort of competitive position. One is clearly in distressed debt, which is where our, the roots of our firm go. Uh, but also in originating loans in situations that are complicated, uh, as well as in real estate. And, and over time, because of our size and because of the number of years we've been in business, the number of specific areas within the markets where we have expertise has broadly expanded to go to structured products, to um, financial institutions, uh, to retail, to a lot of other verticals, uh, gaming, uh, energy, etc. because we have professionals who have been at the firm for a very long time. But within all of them, we've tried to occupy that top quartile of trying to focus not necessarily on being the largest financial institution, but to try to focus on kind of the high value added, um, not quite as scalable uh, types of markets. Now I saw on your website you had this quote from Einstein front and center. 
something to the effect of, I'm not necessarily the smartest person, arguable, uh, but it's just that I think harder or longer than other people. Does that speak to your process? I think it does. I think we, we try to be a firm that um, has a level of humility. Um, we were always, I used to call us the, when we were strictly a hedge fund firm, and today hedge funds are less than half of the aggregate assets of Kang and all those other vehicles are over half. Uh, but we always tried to be kind of uh, humble and hardworking, if you want to think of it that way, as a firm. And we tried to have a culture where um, deep academic type of research and really, really knowing your credits uh, was highly, highly valued. And I think we still have that. I think we still have that reputation today as being a, a, a quality firm in that we, we don't take a lot of shortcuts. Right. I saw you're from Boston and you went to Harvard College, Harvard Law School, Harvard Business School, and I saw this uh, a funny interview you did or a funny point in the interview where you were saying that you took your student loan which was due at 7% and invested in a fidelity fund that was paying 13 as an arbitrage. Yeah, that was the first days of the uh, Volcker period when rates were pushed up through the moon. And uh, my roommate at the time uh, was Mitch Julis, who's my business partner, co-founding partner. Um, we sort of reunited prior to Canyon um, had careers at Drexel. But when we were roommates back then, I think Mitch was the one who came up with the idea of these money market funds that Fidelity had. And all of a sudden, you didn't have to keep your money in the bank earning zero. You could put it in this very reputable manager uh, who wasn't exposing you to duration, but was just buying things that had a hell of a lot more yield. So for very, very modest risk. So that was one of our first active investment uh, theses. Well, there are a couple places to jump off of from there. Number one, we talked about inflation and Volcker, and here we are again, perhaps, want to get to that. And then also, we're here at the Milken Conference, and you worked with Mike Milken back at Drexel Burnham Lambert in LA at the famous X-shaped decks, I suppose, all those decades ago. Maybe we'll start with that first. What's it like to be here, and Mike is still wandering the halls uh, after all this time? It's great. I mean, um Mike was an extraordinary boss, or in my case, actually boss's boss. Um, uh, but I interacted with Mike on a daily basis, and uh, the level of energy and creativity back then was unbelievable. I, I don't think that the that it's quite as broadly known as it should be. Um, the type of innovation that Mike pioneered in in, in that period in the 1980s. Um, Prior to Mike's arrival, the only non-investment grade bonds that existed really were fallen angels, investment grade bonds that had been downgraded. But the idea of doing a new issue bond for somebody like, say, a private equity firm, like at the time there weren't that many of them, but for, say, KKR, Clayton Dubalier, Westray, other firms that were, um, you know, uh, Gibbons Green, Van Amerung, and the predecessor to Leonard Green and company, um, the idea of giving them this weapon of doing a new issue high yield bond that could save them months of negotiation with a private placement insurance company or whatever the alternative was and, and enable them to complete financings very rapidly um, really turbocharged the whole private equity business. And of course that business today has just become an enormous business at every firm on Wall Street. So many people came out of Drexel as well, but I should point out of course the firm imploded and Mike got him in some troubles himself. Does that tarnish the legacy of what happened there, do you think? No, I mean, I think um, it's easy to get lost in that detour. I, I don't think there's anyone in the history of 
the financial industry that I can think of who's had as much positive impact on the world as Mike, both before and after uh, that period. Um, and, and the impact today is so far beyond the financial world uh, that it's really, um, I mean, in healthcare, in um, just uh, promoting the values of a largely free enterprise economic system and what that does to create wealth for the average person in society and so forth. Uh, Mike has been a leading thinker in so many ways. And I think that being part of that group, it was the most innovative, creative, and empowering organization. Um, I think at every level, we were, we were very young, we were very inexperienced, but these were new markets. There was no one who knew any more than we did anyway. So we were encouraged to be creative and figure it out. And that's, that's what we did. And I, I look at so many people who are walking around this conference today, from senior executives at Goldman Sachs to senior executives to, at buyout firms, to people who have long since retired, who came out of that, um, that common background. Uh, it was both a place to learn and to learn that you could be confident in doing something innovative. Let's switch back to the interest rate environment uh, piece that we were talking about a little bit. Um, we haven't seen inflation potentially rearing its head like this since the Volcker era. How serious are you taking inflation, Josh, and how is it informing how you're doing your business? Well, it has been really tough the last couple of years with rates low and having the sense that, generally speaking, most financial markets, the pricing was at such a level that it reflected nothing but what we call negative optionality. So essentially, if you bought a debt security, the, the yield was so low that you had exposure to rates going up, you had exposure to rate spreads going up, and you had exposure to credit risk. So you had three different ways you could lose. And in terms of winning, in the, in the generally accessible parts of the high yield market from uh, you know, double B down to triple C, there wasn't that much upside. So you had to find much more creative and unusual ways to create enough yield to compensate you for whatever risks you were taking. And that was the story of the last few years, whether that involved doing creative new financings, whether it involved finding the restructurings that existed, like the Caesars and the Puerto Ricos and some of the retailers and the oil rig companies, and the list goes on a bit. But those were from the last cycle. As those were going away and rates stayed really, really, really low, it was pretty challenging to find out, find what to do um, within the credit markets, but it was equally challenging in the equity markets because the levels were getting to nosebleed levels, yeah. particularly for companies that, many of which had no particular earnings model or maybe even revenue model. So now all of a sudden the Fed has decided that they've overshot. Uh, inflation is clearly here in the labor markets, is here in the commodity markets, is here in the supply disruption for all sorts of goods and services. So to get that psychology of inflation wrung out of the system really requires some pretty extreme action. Um, I'm not necessarily of the view that the inflation will be here forever, but I think parts of that inflation are very hard for the Fed alone to address. Um, they can raise interest rates all they want. It doesn't necessarily curtail the gap between the number of people who are on the bench looking for jobs and the number of jobs that are available, particularly as we go through a deglobalization period and more jobs are actually created onshore and make that gap even wider. I don't think the Fed can necessarily take all the commodity inflation out of the picture, um, particularly when there's a great reluctance to restart a lot of oil drilling, particularly in this country, as people think um, 
prudently about environmental considerations, yet at the same time, uh, demand has been roaring back. So I, I think the Fed can try. I don't think they're going to want to induce a complete um, massive recession. So I think we'll have fits and starts, and I think parts of that inflation will be here for a while. And I think we're done for the moment with zero interest rates. And so how are you changing your business model? So if you're anticipating, it sounds like quasi-sustained inflation or certainly somewhat stubborn inflation, then what does that mean for how you're doing, doing your work? You know, we're, we're not trying to make macroeconomic bets, so we're yeah. trying to prepare for a range of outcomes, but we're also trying to look at what that range could be. And, and certainly in the last period, the range included widening spreads, widening interest rates, and credit uh, defaults at some point. So we had a lot of downside, not much upside. So the range of strategies that we pursued in that, what I call negative optionality environment, is quite different from the range of strategies that we look toward in a, in a situation where the markets are more disrupted. And clearly with the equity markets down, you know, 13 to 20%, much of which was in the last two weeks, with the high yield market down 8% off of where it started the year, and with, with uh, much, much higher rates prevailing in the world, um, the range of opportunities is different. Some of those are really just simple secondary market purchases. Um, deals that got hung up because the underwriter was a little too greedy and uh, we might not have been interested in playing when they were selling the bonds at par. Um, you get one set of loose hands out there and all of a sudden they drop to 88. And it might be just as good a credit and the economy may be, may be just fine in terms of the variables facing that specific issuer, but 88 is a very different set of upside versus downside when you're getting a decent coupon as well uh, than par. So we're looking at things like that. We're looking at companies that have bank debt that is a significant part of their balance sheet where rising rate environments really tax them quite significantly. And we will see some stress and we will see some distress that we haven't seen in the last few years. So, and, and, and again, the new issue, call it direct private lending market, also has implications because some of people's ardor to make loans will be tempered a little bit by the environment that we're in. We were talking about that bond example. You reminded me of what Howard Marks said to me one time, no bad assets, only bad prices. That's right. Love that one. Um, so someone was telling me recently that they thought there was just so much liquidity in the capital markets that you know pricing had gone to you know where. And do you think we're going to see a, a washing out now in terms of the amount of money being put to work here? And maybe that's not such a bad thing. I think that um, there is a lot of liquidity. But I guess what I would say is whether that liquidity gets put to work or not depends on people's optimism or pessimism. Mm. And optimism and pessimism always overshoot. And when people are invested in the NASDAQ and it's down 20%, they become, in, in an ironic way, generally more pessimistic. Most people are not natural contrarians. And by the way, 20% may not be enough anyway. Mm -hmm. As we were talking earlier today about how one of the great venture capital investors out there uh, was quoted yesterday saying, just because the stock's down 70% doesn't mean it's cheap. Right, right. Um, and I'm wondering what your take on Jay Powell is um, during his whole tenure and especially now. Well, I think Jay Powell uh, is trying to correct for some overshoot and I think he he, as soon as he was reappointed, he definitely um, stopped referring to transitory inflation at all. We haven't heard the word one time since then. 
um, because it's stickier than he thought it was going to be, or maybe because he was um, uh, looking at a different set of variables when he was determining whether or not he'd be reappointed. You know, once he's reappointed, he has a little bit more liberty in how he um, how he acts and can be um, subject to more criticism and maybe be able to take it better. So right now, I think um, I think he's doing a good job at trying to wring out some of that inflation. I do think they overshot dramatically. And I know Larry Summers was a huge critic there. And I, and I tend to think that Larry was on the nose there. Um, as I mentioned uh, earlier, I think, um, you know, if you go back in the history of the Fed, you know, William McChesney Smith used to say, yeah. there are, uh, Martin rather, used to say that the, the, um, the role of the Fed is take away the punch bowl just when the party's starting. We didn't do that. Right. We did the opposite of what McChesney Martin said we should do. There are some people, Josh, who said, well, yes, but the reason why is 2008, 2009, we didn't do enough. So this time, we're damned if we're not going to not do enough. The Fed sure came in with both guns blazing the second COVID hit. But that was a true exogenous shock of major proportion. And the Fed came in as well. But the second phase, once the market started to recover, of continuing that stimulus was where it was violating that principle of starting to take the punch bowl away. Right. I, I look at the Fed and the Treasury to some extent as if they're um, steering rudders on a very large and very heavy ship. And when the, when the ship starts to recover, um, you have to be looking way down the canal to figure out how you're gonna prevent it from hitting the wall. And if you, if you don't get off the accelerator early, it oversteers. And, and you compound that institutional oversteering yeah. with human nature tendency to oversteer in terms of greed and fear. And I think it can be a volatile combination. And that's a little bit of what we're seeing now. Shifting gears a little bit, you grew your business here in Los Angeles for many, many years, but you recently moved to Texas. Explain to us why you did that and tell us how it's going. Sure. Um, Texas is a very, uh, friendly place for businesses. If you look at firms like Goldman Sachs and others, Goldman is moving literally thousands of employees there. I think for our, uh, if sometimes a change of venue or an additional venue injects an element of excitement and growth into a firm. Uh, I certainly felt that, lay, that way when I moved from New York to Los Angeles uh, 37 years ago or 38 years ago now. And I think uh, We've, maintained, we've continued to maintain an office here in Los Angeles. It's a very active and productive office. It's actually larger than our office in Texas, and we didn't force anyone to move to Texas. However, we have a large office there now, and I think for our younger employees, they are enjoying a, um, a much lower cost of living. Um, almost everyone has bought a home, um, and those homes have all appreciated because of the, the type of environment it is toward business. Um, their commute to work is short, uh, the cost of gas is relatively lower. Uh, they have a variety of educational alternatives from public schools to private schools, um, all of them at or lower in cost substantially than, than California. Uh, California, um, in many respects, like uh, even like Miami, Florida, while uh, Miami has a lower tax regime than California, it does have um, a lot of the complexities of a high cost of living and a high cost of housing and, and a lot of those um, urbanization issues that aren't quite so prevalent in, in Dallas. We've also, I think, gotten pretty good at operating remote workforces. Mm -hmm. We've always had 
cores of research people in London, New York, Los Angeles, and Hong Kong. So adding uh, a Dallas hub as well wasn't particularly difficult. We also have offices in Korea, in Japan, and in Hong Kong. And you yourself have moved to Dallas. Yes, I have. And how's it going? It's great. I mean, I have to say, um, it's an adjustment after yeah. so many years in one place. I travel a lot and I visit right. all the offices frequently, but I, I, I can't imagine a more hospitable and genuinely welcoming environment that I've found for myself and my, and my wife. And I think, um, I think everyone in our office has found that. People have been incredibly gracious and have gone way beyond uh, my expectations in making us feel comfortable in our new home. And shifting back to Harvard, you're on the board of Harvard Management? Yes. So that's essentially the board of trustees. There's two boards. And how's that going? I mean, the conversations there over the past couple of years must be fascinating in terms of all the social issues um, and COVID and well, the Supreme Court cases and all sorts well, of things. Well, it's interesting. We get a lot of um, updating and information on those issues uh, from the president, who's on the board of Harvard Management also. But our mandate is much more limited. Um, we are basically the board of directors for a 50-plus billion dollar investment entity. That's what we right. care about. Uh, we take our instructions from our shareholder, which is the corporation. And so the... Um, the, the members of the corporation and the president and fellows really are the shareholders of which we are the board of trust, uh, we are the board of directors essentially for this corporate entity. And our job is to make sure that the money is managed in a way that um, takes into account the needs and uh, desires of the corporation, uh, which involve having payouts every year, et cetera, but also involve that whole competitive world of trying to make sure we have enough performance so that the university can maintain its uh, excellence in everything that it does in its, in its daily mission. So we aren't really involved in those other aspects of admission, except to, of, of its mission, except to make sure that, that we're running that operation in a way that it can fulfill those obligations and then, and then some. Well, maybe you can tell them about that arbitrage strategy you had all those years ago, right? Exactly. Josh Friedman, co-CEO of Canyon Partners, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much, Andy. You've been watching Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Influencers. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow Yahoo Finance on Twitter at Yahoo Finance and at Serwer.